Freedom in the Annex. 5.30. Bep's arrival signals the beginning of our nightly freedom. Things get going right away. I go upstairs with Bep, who usually has her dessert before the rest of us. The moment she sits down, Mrs. Van D. begins stating her wishes. Her list usually starts with, Oh, by the way, Bep, something else I'd like. Bep winks at me. Mrs. Van D. doesn't miss a chance to make her wishes known to whoever comes upstairs. It must be one of the reasons none of them like to go up there. 5.45. Bep leaves. I go down two floors to have a look around, first to the kitchen, then to the private office, and then to the coal bin to open the cat door for Mushi. After a long tour of inspection, I wind up in Mr. Kugler's office. Mr. Van Dan is combing all the drawers and files for today's mail. Peter picks up Bosch and the warehouse key. Pim lugs the typewriters upstairs. Margot looks around for a quiet place to do her office work. Mrs. Vandy puts a kettle of water on the stove. Mother comes down the stairs with a pan of potatoes. We all know our jobs. Soon Peter comes back from the warehouse. The first question they ask him is whether he's remembered the bread. No, he hasn't. He crouches before the door to the front office to make himself as small as possible and crawls on his hands and knees to the steel cabinet, takes out the bread, and starts to leave. At any rate, that's what he intends to do. But before he knows what's happened, Mushi has jumped over him and gone to sit under the desk. Peter looks all around him. Aha! There's the cat! He crawls back into the office and grabs the cat by the tail. Mushi hisses. Peter sighs. What has he accomplished? Mushi's now sitting by the window licking herself, very pleased at having escaped Peter's clutches. Peter has no choice but to lure her with a piece of bread. Mushi takes the bait, follows him out, and the door closes. I watch the entire scene through a crack in the door. Mr. Van Dan is angry and slams the door. Margot and I exchange looks and think the same thing. He must have worked himself into a rage again because of some blunder on Mr. Kugler's part, and he's forgotten all about the keg company next door. Another step is heard in the hallway. Dussel comes in, goes toward the window with an air of propriety, sniffs, coughs, sneezes, and clears his throat. He's out of luck. It was Pepper. He continues on to the front office. The curtains are open, which means he can't get at his writing paper. He disappears with a scowl. Margot and I exchange another glance. One less page for his sweetheart tomorrow, I hear her say. I nod in agreement. An elephant's tread is heard on the stairway. It's Dussel, seeking comfort in his favorite spot. We continue working. Knock, knock, knock. Three taps means dinner time. Monday, August 23, 1943. Wenn die Uhr halb neun schlägt. Margot and Mother are nervous. Shh! Father, be quiet. Otto, shh! Pim! It's 8.30. Come here, you can't run the water anymore. Walk softly. A sample of what's said to Father in the bathroom. At the stroke of half past eight, he has to be in the living room. No running water, no flushing toilet, no walking around, no noise whatsoever. As long as the office staff hasn't arrived, sounds travel more easily to the warehouse. The door opens upstairs at 8.20, and this is followed by three gentle taps on the floor. Anne's hot cereal. I clamber up the stairs to get my doggy dish. Back downstairs, everything has to be done quickly. Quickly, I comb my hair, put away the potty, shove the bed back in place. Quiet! The clock is striking 8.30. Mrs. Van D. changes shoes and shuffles through the room in her slippers. Mr. Van D. too, a veritable Charlie Chaplin. All is quiet.
The ideal family scene has now reached its high point. I want to read or study, and Margot does too. Father and mother ditto. Father is sitting, with Dickens and the dictionary, of course, on the edge of the sagging, squeaky bed, which doesn't even have a decent mattress. Two bolsters can be piled on top of each other. I don't need these, he thinks. I can manage without them. Once he starts reading, he doesn't look up. He laughs now and then and tries to get Mother to read a passage. I don't have the time right now. He looks disappointed, but then continues to read. A little while later, when he comes across another interesting bit, he tries again. You have to read this, Mother. Mother sits on the folding bed, either reading, sewing, knitting, or studying, whichever is next on her list. An idea suddenly occurs to her, and she quickly says, so as not to forget, Anne, remember to... Margot, jot this down. After a while, it's quiet again. Margot slams her book shut. Father knits his forehead, his eyebrows forming a funny curve and his wrinkle of concentration reappearing at the back of his head, and he buries himself in his book again. Mother starts chatting with Margot, and I get curious and listen, too. Pim is drawn into the conversation. Nine o'clock. Breakfast. Friday, September 10th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, every time I write to you, something special has happened, usually unpleasant rather than pleasant. This time, however, something wonderful is going on. On Wednesday, September 8th, we were listening to the 7 o'clock news when we heard an announcement. Here is some of the best news of the war so far. Italy has capitulated. Italy has unconditionally surrendered. The Dutch broadcast from England began at 8.15 with the news. Listeners, an hour and 15 minutes ago, just as I finished writing my daily report, we received the wonderful news of Italy's capitulation. I tell you, I never tossed my notes into the waste paper basket with more delight than I did today. God Save the King, the American National Anthem, and the Russian Internationale were played. As always, the Dutch program was uplifting without being too optimistic. The British have landed in Naples. Northern Italy is occupied by the Germans. The truce was signed on Friday, September 3rd, the day the British landed in Italy. The Germans are ranting and raving in all the newspapers at the treachery of Badoglio and the Italian king. Still, there's bad news as well. It's about Mr. Kleiman. As you know, we all like him very much. He's unfailingly cheerful and amazingly brave, despite the fact that he's always sick and in pain and can't eat much or do a lot of walking. When Mr. Kleiman enters a room, the sun begins to shine. Mother said recently, and she's absolutely right. Now it seems he has to go to the hospital for a very difficult operation on his stomach and will have to stay there for at least four weeks. You should have seen him when he told us goodbye. He acted so normally, as though he were just off to do an errand. Yours, Anne. Thursday, September 16th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, relationships here in the annex are getting worse all the time. We don't dare open our mouths at mealtime, except to slip in a bite of food, because no matter what we say, someone is bound to resent it or take it the wrong way. Mr. Foskell occasionally comes to visit us. Unfortunately, he's not doing very well. He isn't making it any easier for his family, because his attitude seems to be, what do I care, I'm going to die anyway. When I think how touchy everyone is here, I can just imagine what it must be like at the Foskells. I've been taking valerian every day to fight the anxiety and depression, but it doesn't stop me from being even more miserable the next day. 
A good hearty laugh would help more than ten valerian drops. But we've almost forgotten how to laugh. Sometimes I'm afraid my face is going to sag with all this sorrow, and that my mouth is going to permanently droop at the corners. The others aren't doing any better. Everyone here is dreading the great terror known as winter. Another fact that doesn't exactly brighten up our day is that Mr. Van Maren, the man who works in the warehouse, is getting suspicious about the annex. A person with any brains must have noticed by now that Meep sometimes says she's going to the lab, Bep to the file room and Mr. Kleiman to the Opetka supplies, while Mr. Kugler claims the annex doesn't belong to this building at all, but to the one next door. We wouldn't care what Mr. Van Maren thought of the situation, except that he's known to be unreliable and to possess a high degree of curiosity. He's not one who can be put off with a flimsy excuse. One day, Mr. Kugler wanted to be extra cautious, so at twenty past twelve, he put on his coat and went to the drugstore around the corner. Less than five minutes later, he was back, and he sneaked up the stairs like a thief to visit us. At one fifteen, he started to leave. But Bep met him on the landing and warned him that Van Maren was in the office. Mr. Kugler did an about-face and stayed with us until one thirty. Then he took off his shoes and went in his stocking feet, despite his cold, to the front attic and down the other stairway, taking one step at a time to avoid the creaks. It took him fifteen minutes to negotiate the stairs, but he wound up safely in the office after having entered from the outside. In the meantime, Bep had gotten rid of Van Maren and come to get Mr. Kugler from the annex. But he'd already left, and at that moment was still tiptoeing down the stairs. What must the passers-by have thought when they saw the manager putting on his shoes outside? Hey, you, there, in the socks. Yours, Anne. Wednesday, September twenty-ninth, 1943. Dearest Kitty, it's Mrs. Van Dan's birthday. Other than one ration stamp each for cheese, meat, and bread, all she received from us was a jar of jam. Her husband, Dussel, and the office staff gave her nothing but flowers and also food. Such are the times we live in. Bep had a nervous fit last week because she had so many errands to do. Ten times a day people were sending her out for something, each time insisting she go right away or go again or that she'd done it all wrong. And when you think that she has her regular office work to do, that Mr. Kleiman is sick, that Meep is home with a cold, and that Bep herself has a sprained ankle— Boyfriend troubles and a grouchy father. It's no wonder she's at the end of her tether. We comforted her and told her that if she'd put her foot down once or twice and say she didn't have the time, the shopping lists would shrink of their own accord. Saturday there was a big drama, the likes of which have never been seen here before. It started with a discussion of Van Maren and ended in a general argument and tears. Dussel complained to Mother that he was being treated like a leper, that no one was friendly to him, and that, after all, he hadn't done anything to deserve it. This was followed by a lot of sweet talk, which luckily Mother didn't fall for this time. She told him we were disappointed in him, and that, on more than one occasion, he'd been a source of great annoyance. Dussel promised her the moon, but, as usual, we haven't seen so much as a beam. There's trouble brewing with the Van Dans, I can tell. Father's furious because they're cheating us. They've been holding back meat and other things. Oh, what kind of bombshell is about to burst now? If only I weren't so involved in all these skirmishes. If only I could leave here. They're driving us crazy. Yours, Anne. Sunday, October 17th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, 
Mr. Kleiman is back, thank goodness. He looks a bit pale, and yet he cheerfully set off to sell some clothes for Mr. Van Dan. The disagreeable fact is that Mr. Van Dan has run out of money. He lost his last hundred guilders in the warehouse, which is still creating trouble for us. The men are wondering how a hundred guilders could wind up in the warehouse on a Monday morning. Suspicion abounds. Meanwhile, the hundred guilders have been stolen. Who's the thief? But I was talking about the money shortage. Mrs. Van D. has scads of dresses, coats, and shoes, none of which she feels she can do without. Mr. Van D.'s suit is difficult to sell. Anne Peter's bike was put on the block, but is back again, since nobody wanted it. But the story doesn't end there. You see, Mrs. Van D. is going to have to part with her fur coat. In her opinion, the firm should pay for our upkeep, but that's ridiculous. They just had a flaming row about it and have entered the, oh, my sweet pootie, and darling Carly stage of reconciliation. My mind boggles at the profanity this honorable house has had to endure in the past month. Father walks around with his lips pressed together, and whenever he hears his name, he looks up in alarm, as if he's afraid he'll be called upon to resolve another delicate problem. Mother's so wrought up her cheeks are blotched with red. Margot complains of headaches. Dussel can't sleep. Mrs. Vandy frets and fumes all day long. And I've gone completely round the bend. To tell you the truth, I sometimes forget who we're at odds with and who we're not. The only way to take my mind off it is to study, and I've been doing a lot of that lately. Yours, Anne. Friday, October 29, 1943. My dearest Kitty, Mr. Kleiman is out again. His stomach won't give him a moment's peace. He doesn't even know whether it stopped bleeding. He came to tell us he wasn't feeling well and was going home, and for the first time he seemed really down. Mr. and Mrs. Vandy have had more raging battles. The reason is simple. They're broke. They wanted to sell an overcoat and a suit of Mr. Vandy's, but were unable to find any buyers. His prices were way too high. Some time ago, Mr. Kleiman was talking about a furrier he knows. This gave Mr. Van D. the idea of selling his wife's fur coat. It's made of rabbit skin, and she's had it for 17 years. Mrs. Van D. got 325 guilders for it, an enormous amount. She wanted to keep the money herself to buy new clothes after the war, and it took some doing before Mr. Van D. could make her understand that it was desperately needed to cover household expenses. You can't imagine the screaming, shouting, stamping of feet, and swearing that went on. It was terrifying. My family stood holding its breath at the bottom of the stairs, in case it might be necessary to drag them apart. All the bickering tears and nervous tension have become such a stress and strain that I fall into my bed at night, crying and thanking my lucky stars that I have half an hour to myself. I'm doing fine, except I've got no appetite. I keep hearing, Goodness, you look awful! I must admit, they're doing their best to keep me in condition. They're plying me with dextrose, cod liver oil, brewer's yeast, and calcium. My nerves often get the better of me, especially on Sundays. That's when I really feel miserable. The atmosphere is stifling, sluggish, leaden. Outside, you don't hear a single bird, and a deathly, oppressive silence hangs over the house and clings to me as if it were going to drag me into the deepest regions of the underworld. At times like these, Father, Mother, and Margot don't matter to me in the least. I wander from room to room, climb up and down the stairs, and feel like a songbird whose wings have been ripped off and who keeps hurling itself against the bars of its dark cage. Let me out where there's fresh air and laughter. 
a voice within me cries. I don't even bother to reply anymore, but lie down on the divan. Sleep makes the silence and the terrible fear go by more quickly. Helps pass the time, since it's impossible to kill it. Yours, Anne. Saturday, October 30th, 1943 Dearest Kitty, Mother's nerves are very much on edge, and that doesn't bode well for me. Is it just a coincidence that father and mother never scold Margot and always blame me for everything? Last night, for example, Margot was reading a book with beautiful illustrations. She got up and put the book aside for later. I wasn't doing anything, so I picked it up and began looking at the pictures. Margot came back, saw her book in my hands, knitted her brow, and angrily demanded the book back. I wanted to look through it some more. Margot got madder by the minute, and Mother butted in. Margot was reading that book. Give it back to her. Father came in, and without even knowing what was going on, saw that Margot was being wronged and lashed out at me. I'd like to see what you'd do if Margot was looking at one of your books. I promptly gave in, put the book down, and, according to them, left the room in a huff. I was neither huffy nor cross, but merely sad. It wasn't right of father to pass judgment without knowing what the issue was. I would have given the book to Margot myself, and a lot sooner, if father and mother hadn't intervened and rushed to take Margot's part as if she were suffering some great injustice. Of course, mother took Margot's side. They always take each other's sides. I'm so used to it that I become completely indifferent to mother's rebukes and Margot's moodiness. I love them, but only because they're mother and Margot. I don't give a darn about them as people. As far as I'm concerned, they can go jump in a lake. It's different with Father. When I see him being partial to Margot, approving Margot's every action, praising her, hugging her, I feel a gnawing ache inside because I'm crazy about him. I model myself after Father, and there's no one in the world I love more. He doesn't realize that he treats Margot differently than he does me. Margot just happens to be the smartest, the kindest, the prettiest, and the best. But I have a right to be taken seriously, too. I've always been the clown and mischief-maker of the family. I've always had to pay double for my sins, once with scoldings and then again with my own sense of despair. I'm no longer satisfied with the meaningless affection or the supposedly serious talks. I long for something from Father that he's incapable of giving. I'm not jealous of Margot. I never have been. I'm not envious of her brains or her beauty. It's just that I'd like to feel that Father really loves me, not because I'm his child, but because I'm me, Anne. I cling to Father because my contempt of Mother is growing daily, and it's only through him that I'm able to retain the last ounce of family feeling I have left. He doesn't understand that I sometimes need to vent my feelings for Mother. He doesn't want to talk about it, and he avoids any discussion involving Mother's failings. And yet Mother, with all her shortcomings, is tougher for me to deal with. I don't know how I should act. I can't very well confront her with her carelessness, her sarcasm, and her hard-heartedness. Yet I can't continue to take the blame for everything. I'm the opposite of Mother, so of course we clash. I don't mean to judge her. I don't have that right. I'm simply looking at her as a mother. She's not a mother to me. I have to mother myself. I've cut myself adrift from them. I'm charting my own course and will see where it leads me. I have no choice, because I can picture what a mother and a wife should be and can't seem to find anything of the sort in the woman I'm supposed to call mother. 
I tell myself time and again to overlook mother's bad example. I only want to see her good points and to look inside myself for what's lacking in her. But it doesn't work, and the worst part is that father and mother don't realize their own inadequacies and how much I blame them for letting me down. Are there any parents who can make their children completely happy? Sometimes I think God is trying to test me, both now and in the future. I'll have to become a good person on my own, without anyone to serve as a model or advise me, but it'll make me stronger in the end. Who else but me is ever going to read these letters? Who else but me can I turn to for comfort? I'm frequently in need of consolation. I often feel weak, and more often than not, I fail to meet expectations. I know this, and every day I resolve to do better. They aren't consistent in their treatment of me. One day they say that Anne's a sensible girl and entitled to know everything, and the next that Anne's a silly goose who doesn't know a thing and yet imagines she's learned all she needs to know from books. I'm no longer the baby and spoiled little darling whose every deed can be laughed at. I have my own ideas, plans, and ideals, but am unable to articulate them yet. Oh, well. So much comes into my head at night when I'm alone, or during the day when I'm obliged to put up with people I can't abide, or who invariably misinterpret my intentions. That's why I always wind up coming back to my diary. I start there and end there because Kitty's always patient. I promise her that, despite everything, I'll keep going, that I'll find my own way and choke back my tears. I only wish I could see some results or, just once, receive encouragement from someone who loves me. Don't condemn me, but think of me as a person who sometimes reaches the bursting point. Yours, Anne. Wednesday, November 3, 1943 Dearest Kitty, to take our minds off matters as well as to develop them, Father ordered a catalog from a correspondence school. Margot poured through the thick brochure three times without finding anything to her liking and within her budget. Father was easier to satisfy and decided to write and ask for a trial lesson in elementary Latin. No sooner said than done. The lesson arrived, Margot set to work enthusiastically and decided to take the course, despite the expense. It's much too hard for me, though. I'd really like to learn Latin. To give me a new project as well, Father asked Mr. Kleiman for a children's Bible so I could finally learn something about the New Testament. Are you planning to give Anne a Bible for Hanukkah? Margot asked, somewhat perturbed. Yes. Well, maybe St. Nicholas Day would be a better occasion, Father replied. Jesus and Hanukkah don't exactly go together. Since the vacuum cleaner's broken, I have to take an old brush to the rug every night. The window's closed, the light's on, the stove's burning, and there I am brushing away at the rug. That's sure to be a problem, I thought to myself the first time. There are bound to be complaints. I was right. Mother got a headache from the thick clouds of dust whirling around the room. Margot's new Latin dictionary was caked with dirt, and Pim grumbled that the floor didn't look any different anyway. Small thanks for my pains. We've decided that from now on the stove is going to be lit at 7.30 on Sunday mornings instead of 5.30. I think it's risky. What will the neighbors think of our smoking chimney? It's the same with the curtains. Ever since we first went into hiding, they've been tacked firmly to the windows. Sometimes one of the ladies or gentlemen can't resist the urge to peek outside. The result? A storm of reproaches. The response? Oh, nobody will notice. 
That's how every act of carelessness begins and ends. No one will notice. No one will hear. No one will pay the least bit of attention. Easy to say, but is it true? At the moment, the tempestuous quarrels have subsided. Only Dussel and the Van Dans are still at loggerheads. When Dussel is talking about Mrs. Van D, he invariably calls her that old bat or that stupid hag. And conversely, Mrs. Van D refers to our ever-so-learned gentleman as an old maid or a touchy neurotic spinster, etc. The pot calling the kettle black. Yours, Anne. Monday evening, November 8th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, if you were to read all my letters in one sitting, you'd be struck by the fact that they were written in a variety of moods. It annoys me to be so dependent on the moods here in the annex, but I'm not the only one. We're all subject to them. If I'm engrossed in a book, I have to rearrange my thoughts before I can mingle with other people, because otherwise they might think I was strange. As you can see, I'm currently in the middle of a depression. I couldn't really tell you what set it off, but I think it stems from my cowardice, which confronts me at every turn. This evening, when Bep was still here, the doorbell rang long and loud. I instantly turned white, my stomach churned, and my heart beat wildly, and all because I was afraid. At night in bed, I see myself alone in a dungeon, without father and mother, or I'm roaming the streets, or the annex is on fire. Or they come in the middle of the night to take us away, and I crawl under my bed in desperation. I see everything as if it were actually taking place. And to think it might all happen soon. Meep often says she envies us because we have such peace and quiet here. That may be true, but she's obviously not thinking about our fear. I simply can't imagine the world will ever be normal again for us. I do talk about after the war but it's as if I were talking about a castle in the air, something that can never come true. I see the eight of us in the annex as if we were a patch of blue sky surrounded by menacing black clouds. The perfectly round spot on which we're standing is still safe, but the clouds are moving in on us, and the ring between us and the approaching danger is being pulled tighter and tighter. We're surrounded by darkness and danger, and in our desperate search for a way out, we keep bumping into each other. We look at the fighting down below and the peace and beauty up above. In the meantime, we've been cut off by the dark mass of clouds so that we can go neither up nor down. It looms before us like an impenetrable wall, trying to crush us, but not yet able to. I can only cry out and implore, Oh, ring, ring, open wide and let us out. Yours, Anne. Thursday, November 11th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, I have a good title for this chapter. Ode to my fountain pen in memoriam. My fountain pen was always one of my most prized possessions. I valued it highly, especially because it had a thick nib and I can only write neatly with thick nibs. It has led a long and interesting fountain pen life, which I will summarize below. When I was nine, my fountain pen, packed in cotton, arrived as a sample of no commercial value, all the way from Aachen, where my grandmother, the kindly donor, used to live. I lay in bed with the flu while the February winds howled around the apartment house. This splendid fountain pen came in a red leather case, and I showed it to my girlfriends the first chance I got. Me, and Frank, the proud owner of a fountain pen. 
When I was ten, I was allowed to take the pen to school, and to my surprise, the teacher even let me write with it. When I was eleven, however, my treasure had to be tucked away again, because my sixth-grade teacher allowed us to use only school pens and ink pots. When I was twelve, I started at the Jewish Lyceum, and my fountain pen was given a new case in honor of the occasion. Not only did it have room for a pencil, it also had a zipper, which was much more impressive. When I was thirteen, the fountain pen went with me to the annex, and together we've raced through countless diaries and compositions. I'd turned fourteen, and my fountain pen was enjoying the last year of its life with me when it was just after five on Friday afternoon. I came out of my room and was about to sit down at the table to write when I was roughly pushed to one side to make room for Margot and Father, who wanted to practice their Latin. The fountain pen remained unused on the table, while its owner, sighing, was forced to make do with a very tiny corner of the table, where she began rubbing beans. That's how we remove mold from the beans and restore them to their original state. At a quarter to six, I swept the floor, dumped the dirt into a newspaper along with the rotten beans, and tossed it into the stove. A giant flame shot up, and I thought it was wonderful that the stove, which had been gasping its last breath, Made such a miraculous recovery. All was quiet again. The Latin students had left, and I sat down at the table to pick up where I'd left off. But no matter where I looked, my fountain pen was nowhere in sight. I took another look. Margot looked. Mother looked. Father looked. Dussel looked. But it had vanished. Maybe it fell in the stove along with the beans. Margot suggested. No, it couldn't have. I replied, but that evening, when my fountain pen still hadn't turned up, we all assumed it had been burned, especially because celluloid is highly inflammable. Our darkest fears were confirmed the next day when Father went to empty the stove and discovered the clip, used to fasten it to a pocket among the ashes. Not a trace of the gold nib was left. It must have melted into stone. Father conjectured. I'm left with one consolation, small though it may be. My fountain pen was cremated, just as I would like to be some day. Yours, Anne. Wednesday, November seventeenth, nineteen forty-three. Dearest Kitty, recent events have the house rocking on its foundations, owing to an outbreak of diphtheria at Beps. She won't be allowed to come in contact with us for six weeks. Without her, the cooking and shopping will be very difficult. Not to mention how much we'll miss her company. Mister Kleiman is still in bed and has eaten nothing but gruel for three weeks. Mister Kugler is up to his neck in work. Margot sends her Latin lessons to a teacher, who corrects and then returns them. She's registered under Bep's name. The teacher's very nice and witty too. I bet he's glad to have such a smart student. Dussel is in a turmoil and we don't know why. It all began with Dussel saying nothing when he was upstairs. He didn't exchange so much as a word with either Mister or Missus Van Dam. We all noticed it. This went on for a few days, and then Mother took the opportunity to warn him about Missus Van D, who could make life miserable for him. Dussel said Mister Van Dam had started the silent treatment, and he had no intention of breaking it. I should explain that yesterday was November sixteenth, the first anniversary of his living in the annex. Mother received a plant in honor of the occasion. But Mrs. Van Dam, 
who had alluded to the date for weeks and made no bones about the fact that she thought Dussel should treat us to dinner, received nothing. Instead of making use of the opportunity to thank us for the first time, for unselfishly taking him in, he didn't utter a word, and on the morning of the 16th, when I asked him whether I should offer him my congratulations or my condolences, he replied that either one would do. Mother, having cast herself in the role of peacemaker, made no headway whatsoever, and the situation finally ended in a draw. I can say without exaggeration that Dussel has definitely got a screw loose. We often laugh to ourselves because he has no memory, no fixed opinions, and no common sense. He's amused us more than once by trying to pass on the news he's just heard, since the message invariably gets garbled in transmission. Furthermore, he answers every reproach or accusation with a load of fine promises, which he never manages to keep. Der Mann hat einen großen Geist und ist so klein Fantaten. Yours, Anne. Saturday, November 27th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, last night, just as I was falling asleep, Hanalee suddenly appeared before me. I saw her there, dressed in rags, her face thin and worn. She looked at me with such sadness and reproach in her enormous eyes that I could read the message in them. Oh, Anne, why have you deserted me? Help me. Help me. Rescue me from this hell. And I can't help her. I can only stand by and watch while other people suffer and die. All I can do is pray to God to bring her back to us. I saw Hanalee and no one else, and I understood why. I misjudged her, wasn't mature enough to understand how difficult it was for her. She was devoted to her girlfriend, and it must have seemed as though I were trying to take her away. The poor thing, she must have felt awful. I know because I recognized the feeling in myself. I had an occasional flash of understanding, but then got selfishly wrapped up again in my own problems and pleasures. It was mean of me to treat her that way, and now she was looking at me, oh, so helplessly, with her pale face and beseeching eyes. If only I could help her. Dear God, I have everything I could wish for, while fate has her in its deadly clutches. She was as devout as I am maybe even more so, and she too wanted to do what was right. But then why have I been chosen to live while she's probably going to die? What's the difference between us? Why are we now so far apart? To be honest, I hadn't thought of her for months. No, for at least a year. I hadn't forgotten her entirely, and yet it wasn't until I saw her before me that I thought of all her suffering. Oh, Hanalee, I hope that if you live to the end of the war and return to us, I'll be able to take you in and make up for the wrong I've done you. But even if I were ever in a position to help, she wouldn't need it more than she does now. I wonder if she ever thinks of me and what she's feeling. Merciful God, comfort her, so that at least she won't be alone. Oh, if only you could tell her I'm thinking of her with compassion and love. It might help her go on. I've got to stop dwelling on this. It won't get me anywhere. I keep seeing her enormous eyes, and they haunt me. Does Hanalee really and truly believe in God, or has religion merely been foisted upon her? I don't even know that. I never took the trouble to ask. Hanalee, Hanalee, if only I could take you away. If only I could share everything I have with you. It's too late. I can't help or undo the wrong I've done.
but I'll never forget her again, and I'll always pray for her. Yours, Anne. Monday, December 6th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, the closer it got to St. Nicholas Day, the more we all fought back to last year's festively decorated basket. More than anyone, I thought it would be terrible to skip a celebration this year. After long deliberation, I finally came up with an idea, something funny. I consulted Pim, and a week ago we set to work writing a verse for each person. Sunday evening at a quarter to eight, we trooped upstairs carrying the big laundry basket, which had been decorated with cutouts and bows made of pink and blue carbon paper. On top was a large piece of brown wrapping paper with a note attached. Everyone was rather amazed at the sheer size of the gift. I removed the note and read it aloud. Once again, St. Nicholas Day has even come to our hideaway. It won't be quite as fun, I fear, as the happy day we had last year. Then we were hopeful, no reason to doubt, that optimism would win the bout. And by the time this year came round, we'd all be free and safe and sound. Still, let's not forget it's St. Nicholas Day, though we've nothing left to give away. We'll have to find something else to do. So everyone, please look in their shoe. As each person took their own shoe out of the basket, there was a roar of laughter. Inside each shoe was a little paper package addressed to its owner. Yours, Anne. Wednesday, December 22, 1943. Dearest Kitty, a bad case of flu has prevented me from writing to you until today. Being sick here is dreadful. With every cough, I had to duck under the blanket once, twice, three times, and try to keep from coughing anymore. Most of the time, the tickle refused to go away, so I had to drink milk with honey, sugar, or cough drops. I get dizzy just thinking about all the cures I've been subjected to. Sweating out the fever, steam treatment, wet compresses, dry compresses, hot drinks, swabbing my throat, lying still, heating pad, hot water bottles, lemonade, and Every two hours, the thermometer. Will these remedies really make you better? The worst part was when Mr. Dussel decided to play doctor and laid his pomaded head on my bare chest to listen to the sounds. Not only did his hair tickle, but I was embarrassed, even though he went to school 30 years ago and does have some kind of medical degree. Why should he lay his head on my heart? After all, he's not my boyfriend. For that matter, he wouldn't be able to tell a healthy sound from an unhealthy one. He'd have to have his ears cleaned first, since he's becoming alarmingly hard of hearing. But enough about my illness. I'm fit as a fiddle again. I've grown almost half an inch and gained two pounds. I'm pale, but itching to get back to my books. Ausnahmsweise, the only word that will do here. We're all getting on well together. No squabbles, though that probably won't last long. There hasn't been such peace and quiet in this house for at least six months. Bep is still in isolation, but any day now her sister will no longer be contagious. For Christmas, we're getting extra cooking oil, candy, and molasses. For Hanukkah, Mr. Dussel gave Mrs. Van Dan and Mother a beautiful cake, which he'd asked Meep to bake, on top of all the work she has to do. Margot and I received a brooch made out of a penny, all bright and shiny. I can't really describe it, but it's lovely. I also have a Christmas present for Meep and Bep. For a whole month, I've saved up the sugar I put on my hot cereal, and Mr. Kleiman has used it to have fondant made. The weather is drizzly and overcast. The stove stinks, 
and the food lies heavily on our stomachs, producing a variety of rumbles. The war is at an impasse. Spirits are low. Yours, Anne. Friday, December 24, 1943 Dear Kitty, as I've written you many times before, moods have a tendency to affect us quite a bit here, and in my case it's been getting worse lately. Himmelhoch jauchsen zu Tore betrübt certainly applies to me. I'm on top of the world when I think of how fortunate we are and compare myself to other Jewish children, and in the depths of despair when, for example, Mrs. Kleiman comes by and talks about Yopi's hockey club, canoe trips, school plays, and afternoon teas with friends. I don't think I'm jealous of Yopi, but I long to have a really good time for once and to laugh so hard it hurts. We're stuck in this house like lepers, especially during winter and the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Actually, I shouldn't even be writing this, since it makes me seem so ungrateful, but I can't keep everything to myself, so I'll repeat what I said at the beginning. Paper is more patient than people. Whenever someone comes in from outside, with the wind in their clothes and the cold on their cheeks, I feel like burying my head under the blankets to keep from thinking— when will we be allowed to breathe fresh air again? I can't do that. On the contrary, I have to hold my head up high and put a bold face on things. But the thoughts keep coming anyway, not just once, but over and over. Believe me, if you've been shut up for a year and a half, it can get to be too much for you sometimes. But feelings can't be ignored, no matter how unjust or ungrateful they seem. I long to ride a bike, dance, Whistle, look at the world, feel young, and know that I'm free, and yet I can't let it show. Just imagine what would happen if all eight of us were to feel sorry for ourselves or walk around with the discontent clearly visible on our faces. Where would that get us? I sometimes wonder if anyone will ever understand what I mean, if anyone will ever overlook my ingratitude and not worry about whether or not I'm Jewish and merely see me as a teenager badly in need of some good plain fun. I don't know, and I wouldn't be able to talk about it with anyone, since I'm sure I'd start to cry. Crying can bring relief, as long as you don't cry alone. Despite all my theories and efforts, I miss, every day and every hour of the day, having a mother who understands me. That's why with everything I do and write, I imagine the kind of mom I'd like to be to my children later on the kind of mom who doesn't take everything people say too seriously, but who does take me seriously. I find it difficult to describe what I mean, but the word mom says it all. Do you know what I've come up with? In order to give me the feeling of calling my mother something that sounds like mom, I often call her momsy. Sometimes I shorten it to moms, an imperfect mom. I wish I could honor her by removing the S. It's a good thing she doesn't realize this, since it would only make her unhappy. Well, that's enough of that. My writing has raised me somewhat from the depths of despair. Yours, Anne. It's the day after Christmas, and I can't help thinking about Pim and the story he told me this time last year. I didn't understand the meaning of his words then as well as I do now. If only he'd bring it up again, I might be able to show him I understood what he meant. I think Pim told me because he, who knows the intimate secrets of so many others, needed to express his own feelings for once. 
Pim never talks about himself, and I don't think Margot has any inkling of what he's been through. Poor Pim. He can't fool me into thinking he's forgotten that girl. He never will. It's made him very accommodating, since he's not blind to Mother's faults. I hope I'm going to be a little like him, without having to go through what he has. Anne. Monday, December 27, 1943 Friday evening, for the first time in my life, I received a Christmas present. Mr. Kleiman, Mr. Kugler, and the girls had prepared a wonderful surprise for us. Meep made a delicious Christmas cake with Peace 1944 written on top, and Bep provided a batch of cookies that was up to pre-war standards. There was a jar of yogurt for Peter, Margot, and me, and a bottle of beer for each of the adults. And once again, everything was wrapped so nicely, with pretty pictures glued to the packages. For the rest, the holidays passed by quickly for us. Anne. Wednesday, December 29, 1943. I was very sad again last night. Grandma Anne Hunley came to me once more. Grandma, oh, my sweet grandma. How little we understood what she suffered, how kind she always was, and what an interest she took in everything that concerned us. And to think that all that time she was carefully guarding her terrible secret. Grandma was always so loyal and good. She would never have let any of us down. Whatever happened, no matter how much I misbehaved, Grandma always stuck up for me. Grandma, did you love me, or did you not understand me either? I don't know. How lonely Grandma must have been, in spite of us. You can be lonely even when you're loved by many people, since you're still not anybody's one and only. And Hanali? Is she still alive? What's she doing? Dear God, watch over her and bring her back to us. Hanali, you're a reminder of what my fate might have been. I keep seeing myself in your place. So why am I often miserable about what goes on here? Shouldn't I be happy, contented and glad, except when I'm thinking of Hanali and those suffering along with her? I'm selfish and cowardly. Why do I always think and dream the most awful things and want to scream in terror? Because in spite of everything, I still don't have enough faith in God. He's given me so much, which I don't deserve, and yet each day I make so many mistakes. Thinking about the suffering of those you hold dear can reduce you to tears. In fact, you could spend the whole day crying. The most you can do is pray for God to perform a miracle and save at least some of them. And I hope I'm doing enough of that. Anne. Thursday, December 30th, 1943. Dearest Kitty, since the last raging quarrels, things have settled down here, not only between ourselves, Dussel and upstairs, but also between Mr. and Mrs. Van D. Nevertheless, a few dark thunderclouds are heading this way, and all because of food. Mrs. Van D. came up with the ridiculous idea of frying fewer potatoes in the morning and saving them for later in the day. Mother and Dussel and the rest of us didn't agree with her, so now we're dividing up the potatoes as well. It seems the fats and oils aren't being doled out fairly, and Mother's going to have to put a stop to it. I'll let you know if there are any interesting developments. For the last few months now, we've been splitting up the meat. Theirs with fat, ours without. 
the soup, they eat it, we don't. The potatoes, theirs peeled, ours not. The extras, and now the fried potatoes, too. If only we could split up completely. Yours, Anne. P.S. Bep had a picture postcard of the entire royal family copied for me. Juliana looks very young, and so does the queen. The three little girls are adorable. It was incredibly nice of Bep, don't you think? Sunday, January 2nd, 1944. Dearest Kitty, This morning, when I had nothing to do, I leafed through the pages of my diary and came across so many letters dealing with the subject of mother in such strong terms that I was shocked. I said to myself, Anne, is that really you talking about hate? Oh, Anne, how could you? I continued to sit with the open book in my hand and wonder why I was filled with so much anger and hate that I had to confide it all to you. I tried to understand the Anne of last year and make apologies for her. Because as long as I leave you with these accusations and don't attempt to explain what prompted them, my conscience won't be clear. I was suffering then, and still do, from moods that kept my head underwater, figuratively speaking, and allowed me to see things only from my own perspective, without calmly considering what the others, those whom I, with my mercurial temperament, had hurt or offended, had said, and then acting as they would have done. I hid inside myself, thought of no one but myself, and calmly wrote down all my joy, sarcasm, and sorrow in my diary. Because this diary has become a kind of memory book, it means a great deal to me, but I could easily write over and done with on many of its pages. I was furious at Mother, and still am a lot of the time. It's true she didn't understand me, but I didn't understand her either. Because she loved me, she was tender and affectionate, but because of the difficult situations I put her in and the sad circumstances in which she found herself, she was nervous and irritable, so I can understand why she was often short with me. I was offended, took it far too much to heart, and was insolent and beastly to her, which in turn made her unhappy. We were caught in a vicious circle of unpleasantness and sorrow. Not a very happy period for either of us, but at least it's coming to an end. I didn't want to see what was going on, and I felt very sorry for myself, but that's understandable, too. Those violent outbursts on paper are simply expressions of anger that, in normal life, I could have worked off by locking myself in my room and stamping my foot a few times or calling mother names behind her back. The period of tearfully passing judgment on mother is over. I've grown wiser, and mother's nerves are a bit steadier. Most of the time I manage to hold my tongue when I'm annoyed, and she does too, so on the surface we seem to be getting along better. But there's one thing I can't do, and that's to love mother with the devotion of a child. I soothe my conscience with the thought that it's better for unkind words to be down on paper than for mother to have to carry them around in her heart. Yours, Anne. Thursday, January 6, 1944 Dearest Kitty, Today I have two things to confess. It's going to take a long time, but I have to tell them to someone, and you're the most likely candidate, since I know you'll keep a secret, no matter what happens. The first is about Mother. As you know, I frequently complained about her and then tried my best to be nice. I've suddenly realized what's wrong with her. Mother has said that she sees us more as friends than as daughters. That's all very nice, of course, except that a friend can't take the place of a mother. 
I need my mother to set a good example and be a person I can respect. But in most matters, she's an example of what not to do. I have the feeling that Margot thinks so differently about these things that she'd never be able to understand what I've just told you. And father avoids all conversations having to do with mother. I imagine a mother as a woman who, first and foremost, possesses a great deal of tact, especially toward her adolescent children, and not one who, like Momsy, pokes fun at me when I cry, not because I'm in pain, but because of other things. This may seem trivial, but there's one incident I've never forgiven her for. It happened one day when I had to go to the dentist. Mother and Margot planned to go with me and agreed I should take my bicycle. When the dentist was finished and we were back outside, Margot and Mother very sweetly informed me that they were going downtown to buy or look at something. I don't remember what, and of course, I wanted to go along. But they said I couldn't come because I had my bike with me. Tears of rage rushed to my eyes, and Margot and Mother began laughing at me. I was so furious that I stuck my tongue out at them right there on the street. A little old lady happened to be passing by, and she looked terribly shocked. I rode my bike home and must have cried for hours. Strangely enough, even though Mother has wounded me thousands of times, this particular wound still stings whenever I think of how angry I was. I find it difficult to confess the second one because it's about myself. I'm not prudish, Kitty, and yet every time they give a blow-by-blow -blow account of their trips to the bathroom, which they often do, my whole body rises in revolt. Yesterday I read an article on blushing by Sis Heister. It was as if she'd addressed it directly to me, not that I blush easily, but the rest of the article did apply. What she basically says is that during puberty, girls withdraw into themselves and begin thinking about the wondrous changes taking place in their bodies. I feel that too, which probably accounts for my recent embarrassment over Margot, mother, and father. On the other hand, Margot is a lot shyer than I am, and yet she's not in the least embarrassed. I think that what's happening to me is so wonderful, and I don't just mean the changes taking place on the outside of my body, but also those on the inside. I never discuss myself or any of these things with others, which is why I have to talk about them to myself. Whenever I get my period, and that's only been three times, I have the feeling that in spite of all the pain, discomfort, and mess, I'm carrying around a sweet secret. So even though it's a nuisance, in a certain way, I'm always looking forward to the time when I'll feel that secret inside me once again. Sis Heister also writes that girls my age feel very insecure about themselves and are just beginning to discover that they're individuals with their own ideas, thoughts, and habits. I'd just turned 13 when I came here, so I started thinking about myself and realized that I've become an independent person sooner than most girls. Sometimes... When I lie in bed at night, I feel a terrible urge to touch my breasts and listen to the quiet, steady beating of my heart. Unconsciously, I had these feelings even before I came here. Once, when I was spending the night at Jacques, I could no longer restrain my curiosity about her body, which she'd always hidden from me and which I'd never seen. I asked her whether, as proof of our friendship, we could touch each other's breasts. Jacques refused. I also had a terrible desire to kiss her, which I did. Every time I see a female nude, such as the Venus in my art history book, I go into ecstasy. Sometimes I find them so exquisite I have to struggle to hold back my tears.
If only I had a girlfriend. Thursday, January 6th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, my longing for someone to talk to has become so unbearable that I somehow took it into my head to select Peter for this role. On the few occasions when I have gone to Peter's room during the day, I've always thought it was nice and cozy. But Peter's too polite to show someone the door when they're bothering him, so I've never dared to stay long. I've always been afraid he'd think I was a pest. I've been looking for an excuse to linger in his room and get him talking without his noticing, and yesterday I got my chance. Peter, you see, is currently going through a crossword puzzle craze, and he doesn't do anything else all day. I was helping him, and we soon wound up sitting across from each other at his table, Peter on the chair and me on the divan. It gave me a wonderful feeling when I looked into his dark blue eyes and saw how bashful my unexpected visit had made him. I could read his innermost thoughts, and in his face I saw a look of helplessness and uncertainty as to how to behave, and at the same time a flicker of awareness of his masculinity. I saw his shyness, and I melted. I wanted to say, "'Tell me about yourself. Look beneath my chatty exterior.' but I found that it was easier to think up questions than to ask them. The evening came to a close and nothing happened, except that I told him about the article on blushing. Not what I wrote you, of course, just that he would grow more secure as he got older. That night I lay in bed and cried my eyes out, all the while making sure no one could hear me. The idea that I had to beg Peter for favors was simply revolting, but people will do almost anything to satisfy their longings. Take me, for example— I've made up my mind to visit Peter more often and, somehow, get him to talk to me. You mustn't think I'm in love with Peter, because I'm not. If the Van Dans had had a daughter instead of a son, I'd have tried to make friends with her. This morning, I woke up just before seven and immediately remembered what I'd been dreaming about. I was sitting on a chair and across from me was Peter. Peter Schiff. We were looking at Mary Boss's sketchbook. The dream was so vivid I can even remember some of the drawings. But that wasn't all. The dream went on. Peter's eyes suddenly met mine, and I stared for a long time into those velvety brown eyes. Then he said very softly, If I'd only known, I'd have come to you long ago. I turned abruptly away, overcome by emotion, and then I felt a soft, oh-so-cool and gentle cheek against mine, and it felt so good. So good. At that point, I woke up, still feeling his cheek against mine and his brown eyes staring deep into my heart, so deep that he could read how much I'd loved him and how much I still do. Again, my eyes filled with tears, and I was sad because I'd lost him once more, and yet at the same time glad because I knew with certainty that Peter is still the only one for me. It's funny, but I often have such vivid images in my dreams. One night, I saw Grammy so clearly that I could even make out her skin of soft, crinkly velvet. Another time, Grandma appeared to me as a guardian angel. After that, it was Hanali, who still symbolizes to me the suffering of my friends as well as that of Jews in general, so that when I'm praying for her, I'm also praying for all the Jews and all those in need. And now, Peter, my dearest Peter, I've never had such a clear mental image of him. I don't need a photograph. I can see him oh so well. Yours, Anne. Friday, January 7th, 1944. 
Dearest Kitty, I'm such an idiot. I forgot that I haven't yet told you the story of my one true love. When I was a little girl, way back in kindergarten, I took a liking to Sally Kimmel. His father was gone, and he and his mother lived with an aunt. One of Sally's cousins was a good-looking, slender, dark-haired boy named Opie, who later turned out to look like a movie idol and aroused more admiration than the short, comical, chubby Sally. For a long time, we went everywhere together, but aside from that, my love was unrequited until Peter crossed my path. I had an out-and-out crush on him. He liked me, too, and we were inseparable for one whole summer. I can still see us walking hand-in-hand hand through our neighborhood, Peter in a white cotton suit and me in a short summer dress. At the end of the summer vacation, he went to the seventh grade at the middle school, while I was in the sixth grade at the grammar school. He'd pick me up on the way home, or I'd pick him up. Peter was the ideal boy, tall, good-looking, and slender, with a serious, quiet, and intelligent face. He had dark hair, beautiful brown eyes, ruddy cheeks, and a nicely pointed nose. I was crazy about his smile, which made him look so boyish and mischievous. I'd gone away to the countryside during summer vacation, and when I came back, Peter was no longer at his old address. He'd moved and was living with a much older boy, who apparently told him I was just a kid because Peter stopped seeing me. I loved him so much that I didn't want to face the truth. I kept clinging to him until the day I finally realized that if I continued to chase after him, people would say I was boy crazy. The years went by. Peter hung around with girls his own age and no longer bothered to say hello to me. I started school at the Jewish Lyceum, and several boys in my class were in love with me. I enjoyed it and felt honored by their attentions, but that was all. Later on, Halo had a terrible crush on me, but as I've already told you, I never fell in love again. There's a saying, time heals all wounds. That's how it was with me. I told myself I'd forgotten Peter and no longer liked him in the least, but my memories of him were so strong that I had to admit to myself that the only reason I no longer liked him was that I was jealous of the other girls. This morning I realized that nothing has changed. On the contrary, as I've grown older and more mature, my love has grown along with me. I can understand now that Peter thought I was childish, and yet it still hurts to think he'd forgotten me completely. I saw his face so clearly, I knew for certain that no one but Peter could have stuck in my mind that way. I've been in an utter state of confusion today. When Father kissed me this morning, I wanted to shout, Oh, if only you were Peter! I've been thinking of him constantly, and all day long I've been repeating to myself, Oh, Peto, my darling, darling Peto, where can I find help? I simply have to go on living and praying to God that, if we ever get out of here, Peter's path will cross mine and he'll gaze into my eyes, read the love in them, and say, Oh, Anne, if only I'd known, I'd have come to you long ago. Once, when Father and I were talking about sex, he said I was too young to understand that kind of desire. But I thought I did understand it, and now I'm sure I do. Nothing is as dear to me now as my darling Patel. I saw my face in the mirror, and it looked so different. My eyes were clear and deep. My cheeks were rosy, which they hadn't been in weeks. My mouth was much softer. I looked happy. 
and yet there was something so sad in my expression that the smile immediately faded from my lips. I'm not happy, since I know Patel's not thinking of me, and yet I can still feel his beautiful eyes gazing at me and his cool, soft cheek against mine. Oh, Patel, Patel, how am I ever going to free myself from your image? Wouldn't anyone who took your place be a poor substitute? I love you with a love so great that it simply couldn't keep growing inside my heart, but had to leap out and reveal itself in all its magnitude. A week ago, even a day ago, if you'd asked me, which of your friends do you think you'd be most likely to marry, I'd have answered, Sally, since he makes me feel good, peaceful, and safe. But now I'd cry, Patel, because I love him with all my heart and all my soul. I surrender myself completely except for that one thing. He may touch my face, but that's as far as it goes. This morning, I imagined I was in the front attic with Patel, sitting on the floor by the windows, and after talking for a while, we both began to cry. Moments later, I felt his mouth and his wonderful cheek. Oh, Patel, come to me. Think of me, my dearest Patel. Wednesday, January 12th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, Bep's been back for the last two weeks, though her sister won't be allowed back at school until next week. Bep herself spent two days in bed with a bad cold. Meep and Jan were also out for two days, with upset stomachs. I'm currently going through a dance and ballet craze, and I'm diligently practicing my dance steps every evening. I've made an ultra-modern dance costume out of a lacy lavender slip belonging to Momsy. Bias tape is threaded through the top and tied just above the bust. A pink corded ribbon completes the ensemble. I tried to turn my tennis shoes into ballet slippers, but with no success. My stiff limbs are well on the way to becoming as limber as they used to be. A terrific exercise is to sit on the floor, place a heel in each hand, and raise both legs in the air. I have to sit on a cushion because otherwise my poor backside really takes a beating. Everyone here is reading a book called Salute to Freedom. Mother thought it was extremely good because it describes a number of adolescent problems. I thought to myself, a bit ironically, why don't you take more interest in your own adolescence first? I think Mother believes that Margot and I have a better relationship with our parents than anyone in the whole wide world, and that no mother is more involved in the lives of her children than she is. She must have my sister in mind, since I don't believe Margot has the same problems and thoughts as I do. Far be it from me to point out to Mother that one of her daughters is not at all what she imagines. She'd be completely bewildered, and anyway, she'd never be able to change. I'd like to spare her that grief, especially since I know that everything would remain the same. Mother does sense that Margot loves her much more than I do, but she thinks I'm just going through a phase. Margot's gotten much nicer. She seems a lot different than she used to be. She's not nearly as catty these days and is becoming a real friend. She no longer thinks of me as a little kid who doesn't count. It's funny, but I can sometimes see myself as others see me. I take a leisurely look at the person called Anne Frank and browse through the pages of her life as though she were a stranger. Before I came here, when I didn't think about things as much as I do now, I occasionally had the feeling that I didn't belong to Momsy, Pim, and Margot, and that I would always be an outsider. I sometimes went around for six months at a time pretending I was an orphan. Then I'd chastise myself for playing the victim when really I'd always been so fortunate. 
After that, I'd force myself to be friendly for a while. Every morning when I heard footsteps on the stairs, I hoped it would be Mother coming to say good morning. I'd greet her warmly because I honestly did look forward to her affectionate glance. But then she'd snap at me for having made some comment or other, and I'd go off to school feeling completely discouraged. On the way home, I'd make excuses for her, telling myself that she had so many worries. I'd arrive home in high spirits, chatting nineteen to the dozen until the events of the morning would repeat themselves, and I'd leave the room with my school bag in my hand and a pensive look on my face. Sometimes I'd decide to stay angry, but then I always had so much to talk about after school that I'd forget my resolution and want Mother to stop whatever she was doing and lend a willing ear. Then the time would come once more when I no longer listened for the steps on the stairs and felt lonely and cried into my pillow every night. Everything has gotten much worse here, but you already knew that. Now God has sent someone to help me. Peter. I fondle my pendant, press it to my lips, and think, What do I care? Patal is mine, and nobody knows it. With this in mind, I can rise above every nasty remark. Which of the people here would suspect that so much is going on in the mind of a teenage girl? Saturday, January 15th, 1944 My dearest Kitty, there's no reason for me to go on describing all our quarrels and arguments down to the last detail. It's enough to tell you that we've divided many things like meat and fats and oils and are frying our own potatoes. Recently, we've been eating a little extra rye bread because by four o'clock, we're so hungry for dinner we can barely control our rumbling stomachs. Mother's birthday is rapidly approaching. She received some extra sugar from Mr. Kugler, which sparked off jealousy on the part of the Van Dans, because Mrs. Van Dee didn't receive any on her birthday. But what's the point of boring you with harsh words, spiteful conversations, and tears when you know they bore us even more? Mother has expressed a wish, which isn't likely to come true any time soon, not to have to see Mr. Van Dan's face for two whole weeks. I wonder if everyone who shares a house sooner or later ends up at odds with their fellow residents. Or have we just had a stroke of bad luck? At mealtime, when Dussel helps himself to a quarter of the half-filled gravy boat and leaves the rest of us to do without, I lose my appetite and feel like jumping to my feet knocking him off his chair and throwing him out the door. Are most people so stingy and selfish? I've gained some insight into human nature since I came here, which is good, but I've had enough for the present. Peter says the same. The war is going to go on despite our quarrels and our longing for freedom and fresh air, so we should try to make the best of our stay here. I'm preaching, but I also believe that if I live here much longer, I'll turn into a dried-up old beanstalk and all I really want is to be an honest-to-goodness teenager. Yours, Anne. Wednesday evening, January 19th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, I... There I go again. Don't know what's happened. But since my dream, I keep noticing how I've changed. By the way, I dreamed about Peter again last night, and once again I felt his eyes penetrate mine but this dream was less vivid and not quite as beautiful as the last. You know that I always used to be jealous of Margot's relationship with Father. There's not a trace of my jealousy left now. I still feel hurt when Father's nerves cause him to be unreasonable toward me, but then I think, I can't blame you for being the way you are. 
You talk so much about the minds of children and adolescents, but you don't know the first thing about them. I long for more than father's affection, more than his hugs and kisses. Isn't it awful of me to be so preoccupied with myself? Shouldn't I, who want to be good and kind, forgive them first? I forgive mother, too, but every time she makes a sarcastic remark or laughs at me, it's all I can do to control myself. I know I'm far from being what I should. Will I ever be? And Frank. P.S. Father asked if I told you about the cake. For Mother's birthday, she received a real mocha cake, pre-war quality, from the office. It was a really nice day, but at the moment, there's no room in my head for things like that. Saturday, January 22nd, 1944. Dearest Kitty, can you tell me why people go to such lengths to hide their real selves? Or why I always behave very differently when I'm in the company of others? Why do people have so little trust in one another? I know there must be a reason, but sometimes I think it's horrible that you can't ever confide in anyone, not even those closest to you. It seems as if I've grown up since the night I had that dream, as if I've become more independent. You'll be amazed when I tell you that even my attitude toward the Van Dans has changed. I've stopped looking at all the discussions and arguments from my family's biased point of view. What's brought on such a radical change? Well, you see, I suddenly realized that if Mother had been different, if she'd been a real mom, our relationship would have been very, very different. Mrs. Van Dan is by no means a wonderful person, yet half the arguments could have been avoided if Mother hadn't been so hard to deal with every time they got onto a tricky subject. Mrs. Van Dan does have one good point, though. You can talk to her. She may be selfish, stingy, and underhanded, but she'll readily back down as long as you don't provoke her and make her unreasonable. This tactic doesn't work every time, but if you're patient, you can keep trying and see how far you get. All the conflicts about our upbringing, about not pampering children, about the food, about everything, absolutely everything, might have taken a different turn if we'd remained open and on friendly terms instead of always seeing the worst side. I know exactly what you're going to say, Kitty. But, Anne, are these words really coming from your lips? From you, who have had to put up with so many unkind words from upstairs? From you, who are aware of all the injustices? And yet they are coming from me. I want to take a fresh look at things and form my own opinion, not just ape my parents, as in the proverb, the apple never falls far from the tree. I want to re-examine the Van Dans and decide for myself what's true and what's been blown out of proportion. If I wind up being disappointed in them, I can always side with father and mother. But if not, I can try to change their attitude. And if that doesn't work, I'll have to stick with my own opinions and judgment. I'll take every opportunity to speak openly to Mrs. Van D. about our many differences and not be afraid, despite my reputation as a smart aleck, to offer my impartial opinion. I won't say anything negative about my own family, though that doesn't mean I won't defend them if somebody else does. And as of today, my gossiping is a thing of the past. Up to now, I was absolutely convinced that the Van Dans were entirely to blame for the quarrels, but now I'm sure the fault was largely ours. We were right as far as the issues were concerned, but intelligent people, such as ourselves, should have more insight into how to deal with others. I hope I've got at least a touch of that insight, and that I'll find an occasion to put it to good use. 
Yours, Anne.